Well, as Christians, we love to celebrate the cross. Um, as I contemplate many of my own sermons, I, I'm guessing the reality is I probably speak of the cross two times, two to one, and compare it to the resurrection. After all, the crucifixion is the place where our sin is atoned for, the wrath of God satisfied, and we, the guilty, are declared innocent. It's beautiful. It's glorious. But the truth is, in maybe in moments, we unintentionally downplay the resurrection in our excitement over what Christ has done on our behalf. It's as if we maybe forget that the story doesn't end on Friday, that there's more that comes. Yes, as we replay the story, we hear that Christ was betrayed on Thursday. We see him being beaten and then ultimately crucified on Friday as he hangs on the cross from about 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then he's buried before nightfall. And then there comes that Sabbath of silence on that Saturday. But the Bible picks up on Sunday morning, on early morning, as the dawn awakens, where these women are running to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with these spices and perfumes. It's there that they encounter the angels who ask them a perplexing question. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? And then that great refrain in verse 6 of Luke 24. He is not here, but he has risen. You see, the reality is it comes with this truth. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection, it changes everything. Because consider the consequences. I mean, it's literally, it's, it's catastrophic. It's cataclysm. Yep, catastrophic. We'll leave it at that, right? <laughs> It's catastrophic in the consequences upon humanity if Christ isn't raised. In fact, Paul's going to show us today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 what it means if Christ isn't raised. What we find is, is that the truth of what many people think about us already, that our faith is merely a crutch that won't hold us. It's sinking sand that we, like everyone else, are going to also die and be separated from God forever you see the resurrection matters it's major and so paul brings us to that truth today as we come to first corinthians chapter 15 picking up right after where mark read this morning in the opening verses asking the question well what if christ hasn't been raised as pastor jeff robinson notes there's many things that unfold in this text but we want to look at seven of them that happen here today focusing first on this truth if christ has not been raised then nothing has changed. A part of me wanted to scribble it out and and maybe say, then everything has changed. But what we see happening here is these truths begin to arise from the text. Pick them if you would, beginning in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says there, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. That's the first truth. If there's no resurrection, right? He says that means that not even Christ has been raised. That means that for the tomb to be empty, then animals must have come and like drug off the body of Jesus or maybe as the the temple guards and the Jewish leaders were saying that the disciples merely came in the night and stole his body away and all the other theories that have been postulated throughout time of how Christ would came out of the tomb if he really wasn't raised. And that's what Paul says. If you don't believe in a resurrection as the Sadducees of that day didn't, then there's no hope 
But even Christ could be raised. Secondly, Paul says to us, if Christ isn't raised, then the preaching of the gospel this morning is pointless. Listen to what he says there, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, if Christ hasn't been raised, then every sermon of Paul or Peter or anyone else has been pointless. Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the Roman Catholic door that started the Protestant Reformation was pointless. Every sermon that Billy Graham ever preached was a lie. That's if Christ isn't raised from the dead, beloved. The gospel is no longer good news if he hasn't been raised. It's in fact bad news. Why? Because it says it's built upon a man that can't actually save you. Third, Paul says that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, that your faith this morning is worthless. Look what he says there at the end of verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. We heard that, but look at third here. He says that your faith is in vain. In fact, he says further, further again in verse 17, your faith is futile. It is worthless if Christ hasn't been raised. Why? Because you're believing in a man just like Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Buddha. They live, they die, they're buried, and they're still there. Contemplate that this morning. If Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is in a man somewhere buried in the Middle East today. Beloved, that's like every other world religion. Hoping in a dead man. That's what he says. Church, if, listen, this morning, if that tomb is still empty, it means it's like Barney Fife used to say in Mayberry. There's nothing to see here. It's the reality if there is no resurrection. Fourth, listen to what Paul says again in verse 15. He says, Listen, if there's no resurrection, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. He says, guess what, guys? We are liars. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it's true, the dead are not raised. He says, it's not merely that we're believing a fairy tale if Christ hasn't been raised. We are lying about the holy God of the universe. We are under blasphemous charges. Consider that. If we're saying that Jesus is fully God and fully man and he's not raised from the dead, then we are making blasphemous accusations. We've made a man equal with God. In other words, church, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, he's not God. Fifth, Paul says that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead in verse 17, then that means that all of humanity, you, me, your mama, your grandmother, your brother, your sister, are still in our what? If the wages of sin is death and Jesus died and wasn't raised, this can only mean one thing, that his sacrifice wasn't sufficient and that God wasn't satisfied with his payment. That's what you're weighing this morning. If there's no resurrection, then there is nothing to declare that God was actually satisfied with his payment of sins on our behalf. This means, Paul says, if there is no resurrection of Christ, if Christ has not been raised, He says the implication is that every single person here today and on planet earth is still dead in our sin. We are enslaved to sin and under the rule of Satan. And the consequences of this is more serious than you think. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Then, right, by implication of this, if we are still in our sins because Christ hasn't been raised. Listen to what Paul says. Here is then the implication of the outcome of this. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have what, church? Paul says that if Christ hasn't been raised, then every single dead loved one that you have who was believing and hoping in Christ 
They're in hell at this moment. Hear that for a moment. Let it weigh in on you. If Christ hasn't been raised, then every single dead loved one that you and I have who have hoped in Christ and put their faith and trust in Him, Paul says they're in hell. That's no idle thought. Paul is saying the resurrection changes everything. And then I think he gives a seventh truth here in verse 19. He says if Christ isn't raised, then every Christian is a fool. I mean, this is what the world believes anyway, but Paul's saying that's what the implication is. That's what the, the consequence is. If Christ is still in the grave, if He's still dead, if He didn't overcome sin and death, if He didn't atone for our death, if He didn't satisfy the wrath of God on the cross, Paul says that you and I are merely fools. Listen to what he says, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now Paul in other places calls the gospel, he says, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But he says, but to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. But here Paul says, listen guys, if Christ isn't raised, then we are fools. We are believing a lie. We are trusting in a God who really cannot save us. In other words, Satan has won. That's the implication. That's why this, what we celebrate this morning, is so major. Paul is adding argument upon argument to say, guys, consider the consequences if Christ isn't raised. This is what that means for us. I mean, it can feel that way, can't it? I mean, the wages of sin is death, and it's everywhere around us. It's in our cemeteries, and it's in our cities. We see it in the grave markers of those that we love and those that we don't even know. The pages of Scripture, guys, are filled with statements of they lived and then they died. They lived and then they died. I mean, let's be honest. Like, throughout humanity, that steady drumbeat has been rolling on. You live and you die. You live and you die. That's the truth that keeps coming to us. And Paul says if Christ hasn't been raised, there's no hope. We need to just pack it in. I mean, our being here this morning, it's foolish. It's pointless. Our giving to missions or going on missions, our passion to reach this community and to be evangelistic. Paul says that we, if, if there's no resurrection, then we're wasting our time, our money, and our energy. We need to go do something else. But, but, if Christ has been raised, but if Christ has been raised, beloved, then everything is changed. If Christ has been raised, Paul then is going to say, then everything is changed. There's a transformation that happens. Look what he says. Pick up with me in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Depending on your translation, but say, but now Christ has been raised. Or, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. Why? Well, as Mark read earlier, Paul is assured. Why? Because of all those who have encountered the resurrected Christ. You can read it, verses 3 through 11 there. He piles on example after example of those who encountered the resurrected Christ. But Paul knows something about the resurrected Christ as well. You see in Acts chapter 9, a, a couple books to the left of 1 Corinthians where we are in the New Testament, is Paul himself on the way to go and take other Christians and, and drag them off in jail and, and hopefully be able to put them to death just as Stephen's been killed. Paul encountered the resurrected Christ. 
And it changed that man's heart and his life and his passion and his focus encountering the resurrected Christ. But I want to draw your attention this moment to just something else here in verse 20. Look what it says. So Paul says, listen, everything changes because the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. And notice what he calls Jesus' resurrection. He calls it a first fruit. When I think about first fruits, I'm taken back to my grandparents' garden there off Davis Road. I I can still remember running down the path and my feet touching that cool dirt soil and looking and waiting to hear my grandmother share the good news that the first cherry tomatoes were available. Right? I began to go and she would try to show me which ones were the best and begin to pound those bad boys in one after another only to find out soon that they were gone and my head would fall. And she would say something like, baby, don't worry. Those that came tell us that there's more to come. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that the resurrection of Christ is this moment. It's a first fruit. It's a foretaste of what is coming. As Pastor Trevin Wax knows, that the harvest that God has planned at the end of time, it's coming. How do we know that? Because God has stepped into time, in the person of Christ. He was crucified, buried, but raised. You see, it's a first foretaste. It's the first moment that's saying, guys, the end has already begun to dawn. The resurrection has, in fact, already begun. How does it happen? With the resurrection of Christ. He says he's the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' resurrection, guys, is is what guarantees us all who are in Christ that we too will one day be raised. Consider that. He's died, but he's raised to never die again. Think about his body that was physically mauled and beaten. But he's raised perfectly healthy. Contemplate that for a moment. In a room this size, think about all the struggles you have physically. Think about those that you love who are hurting. Think about all the disabilities and the physical ailments and the impairments and all the things that impact us in this world. And here is our resurrected Savior perfectly healthy. Does that not give you hope? Does that not give you joy that that handful of pills that you got to pop every morning one day will be at an end? This is the joy of our Savior. But beloved, it's not only physical. No, no, no. Jesus' resurrection is also one that indicates our spiritual nature will be truly transformed once and for all. That we too, as, as John says, that we shall see Him as He is, for we shall be like Him. That our sinful nature for once and for all will be gone. Listen, beloved, for all eternity, you and I who are in Christ will never sin. Hallelujah. We will never waste another day. We'll never have a moment of being ashamed. This is what our Savior has brought for us. Church, this is why we pause here in April every year to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. It's it. It marks, why? Because it marks the beginning of the end. Jesus' death declares to us, and His resurrection says that what is true of Jesus will one day be true of our dead loved ones who have died in Christ, and it will be true of us too who are in Christ. That's the hope that you have. That's the joy that you have. Maybe you're wondering, well, how can I be sure this is actually true? Listen to Paul's argument in verses 21 and 22. For as by a man, so again, Paul says for, right? This is his reasoning for what he's just said of of how we can be sure that Christ has been raised and how we can be certain that he's the first fruit, that we who are in him will also be raised like he is. 
Paul says for here it is. He says for he says as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul says, how can we trust that we too will be raised to be like Christ? Well, he says, guess what? You know it from experience and reality because you know that you are already in the first man, Adam. And you know it, what? By experience. You know the dead loved ones that you have that have gone on. You know it of people you don't even know in this community who have already died. Death is continually coming to your doorstep. It's facing maybe some of you right now already in the face. You're seeing it, wrestling with that reality that you and I are mortals, that unless Christ returns, we too will be in the grave. This past week, as I was there at a funeral, that the brother was just reminding us that, as Ecclesiastes says, it's good to be in a funeral because it causes us to pause from all the life and consider our eternities. Paul says, listen, beloved, you and I are in Adam. You may not understand all that that means. Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we're going to be in Genesis 3 and dealing with sin and how Adam and Eve, the first people on earth, acted as our representatives. And because of their sin, we inherited a sin nature from your parents. Whether you have the best parents, you don't know your parents. You inherited a sinner nature from them. So you're a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. And the result is, because of that, every single one of us will die. Unless the Lord returns, that's the reality of it. And so Paul says, listen, guys, how do you know that you will participate in Christ's resurrection? Because you already know that you're participating in Adam's death. And so he's saying, listen, for those who are now in Christ, for those who have repented and believed upon Jesus, the good news of the gospel is Christ's Victory over sin and death becomes your victory over sin and death. Hallelujah. That's what we're celebrating. You see, the first Adam, like like a virus or disease, it spread to us all. You can't escape it. We're sinners. We're condemned. We're unclean. But the second Adam, as we're going to sing, Lord willing, in a few moments at the close of our service, the true and better Adam. He came now to save the hellbound man, to live the life we could never live, to die the death we deserve to die, to pay the, the penalty to God that we deserve to pay, and that he was raised to life that we might share in his victory and resurrection. You see, the first Christ, or the, the, the first Adam came, and he was a sinner, but the second Adam now came, and he brings, look what it says there, the resurrection of the dead. He brings that all who are in him may be in, uh, made alive. So also, they're in Christ. It's the good news of the gospel. His resurrection is our resurrection. That's what you must realize this morning as you stop and celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday. You must realize that if you are in Christ, His story is your story. His victory has become your victory. Maybe you're wondering when. When will this be and and who will participate? Well, Paul answers that in our final verse, verse 23. But each in his own order. He's talking about the resurrection. How's it going to unfold? What's the timing of this going to be? Paul says, well, each in his own order. So look what he says here, a couple things. He says, again, Christ the firstfruits. So Christ is the first one that's raised from the dead, having victory over sin and death. Then, he says, there's something's going to happen later. 
when Christ returns, so that at His coming, when Christ returns, when He splits the clouds with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God shall blast. And it says the dead in Christ shall arise. And we who are still alive shall also rise to be with them in the air. Then at His coming, it says, those who belong to Christ. Did you hear that statement? I want to be really clear with you. Every road doesn't lead home. Good people don't make it to heaven, beloved. After all, how good is good enough? And who are you being compared to? The truth is only forgiven people. Only those who have come under the blood of Christ are experiencing this, of being belonging to Christ. They've become a part of God's family. They've been adopted into His family. I think all of us in this room, we struggle with death, don't we? I mean, our culture, our society, we see it. Why? Because we see best-selling books and movies, all these things trying to explain to us what it looks like, what happens when you die. The truth is from this passage, we don't get any kind of like insider secret of like this is all the things that are going to unfold. But what we get is something even better. We get our God who goes into death before us. Contemplate that for a moment. As I think even last night, I had one that needed to go to the basement to get something. And man, that basement is dark, yo. And he just stood there on those steps looking at him and I like, uh, you going to, you going to come? You going to like, I mean, you've probably had that moment, right? Some of you are older brothers and sisters. You know that you had to go into that room before your younger brothers and sisters would, or as parents or as again, cousins, others, you've had to go into that darkness before. And what so happens after that? The others are willing to follow, aren't they? Because they know that someone else has gone and faced it. Beloved, listen to this this morning. If you are in Christ, you will not face death alone. Do you think He's going to leave you in your hour of greatest need? No, He promises He won't. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Beloved, you can go facing death with peace and joy, knowing that you won't face it alone, but that your Savior will be with you. This is good news of the Gospel. That our greatest unknown and fear, death, we don't have again a three-step process, but instead we have a brother who has come to lead us home. He speaks this word of comfort to us in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, verses 17 and 18. He says these words, fear not, I'm the first and I'm the last. I died and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I have the keys of death and Hades. Beloved, the Bible is unwavering in its testimony about the resurrection. Yes, the Old Testament has glimmers throughout. And then as we come to the gospel, we see it clearly. And then as we look toward Revelation, we see how it changes everything. But maybe you asked this morning, so Blake, that's awesome and exciting. And I'm pumped about that. But how does it change my life here and now? How does it change my daily life? Well, if you remember back to those first seven things that Paul listed to us, The truth is Christ's resurrection flips the script on every single one of those. So I just want to share those with you again. Thinking about the framework of verses 12 to 19. Here's the truth of what we now know. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have joy in knowing that we too will be raised. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have conviction that our preaching and our teaching matters. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have assurance that our faith is in a living Savior. 
Because of Christ's resurrection, we have confidence that what we believe is not a lie. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have peace that our sins are truly forgiven. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have hope that our dead loved ones who are in Christ are not lost, but they are indeed found in the presence of God at this moment. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have purpose that our life has eternal meaning and that our suffering for the gospel is not in vain. That's what Paul wrestles with as the chapter unfolds further. In fact, he says that he speaks of his suffering in verse 31, but then he comes to this statement in verse 32 saying that, you know what? If there is no resurrection, then we ought to live like the rest of the world. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's how the world lives. Live it up now. You only live, YOLO, right? You only live once. Paul says, yes. And if you're in Christ, you only die once. But if you reject the Son of God, know this. The Bible says you will die not only once, but you'll die twice. And that second is an eternal death separated from the holy God of the universe. That's why Christ came, beloved, to save and to rescue You see, the reality is because of Christ's resurrection, every action, every thought, every word, every desire of ours will either bring shame in the presence of God or it'll bring glory to his name. Consider that this morning. This life is not all they're in. That means the way that you sacrifice to give your money to support North American missions, the Annie Armstrong offering, as you help support our church and loving the poor and reaching the lost here. Paul says it's worth it. To those of you here who are serving aging parents or caring for a struggling neighbor, if there's no life after this one, then you're wasting your time. But because there's a resurrection, Paul says that every single thing we do here matters. It matters. It brings eternal significance. Simply put, Christ's resurrection gives your life purpose beyond the grave and therefore it gives it purpose and meaning today. See, the resurrection transforms not only our future, but our present as we hope and trust in Him. So I want to ask today to the unbelievers in this crowd, what's your response to Christ? As Thomas Goodwin once said, Judas heard all of Jesus' sermons. It's not merely enough to hear the Word of God on this Easter morning, no more than it is to come and hear the Word of God every single Sunday morning. It won't save you. No, there's a call to response. And I wanted to share with you the hope of the gospel. You see, it's this three circles that we often share. The first is God's design. The Bible says that God created man and woman and put them in the garden to love God and love one another perfectly. There was no sin there. There was no division. There was no, there was no tension and, and lack of peace, but everything was perfect. But the Bible says soon after that, man sinned. He rebelled against God's good design and went to his own way. And the Bible says this just leads us to a place of brokenness. And if you notice, those squiggly circles, they never lead back home. They just lead us to further and more brokenness. We try to fill our life with relationships or this prize or this that prize or this amount of achievement or whatever it may be, drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be for you. We all have those vices that we seek to find pleasure in other places. But the Bible says that brokenness will never, ever lead you home. But the good news is there's a third circle. That Jesus Christ, that down arrow, says that He came and lived the life that you and I were called to live. He lived God's design perfectly. And therefore, when He goes to the old rugged cross and wears that crown of thorns and takes the judgment of God, He's dying not for His own sin and brokenness, but for yours. 
And beloved, the hope that we have that God was satisfied with his payment, that he is indeed the sacrificial lamb, is that on the third day he was raised to life again, declaring that he is indeed the king, the Messiah, the savior. He is Jesus. The question is, how will you respond to that today? And the Bible says the call is to turn and believe, to, to repent of your sin and your brokenness. Not that you can rescue yourself out of that way of life. You're just calling out, Jesus, have mercy on me. I can't overcome these sinful desires. They're ruining me. They're reckoning me. I thought I could find pleasure and joy in these ways of life, but it's never satisfied. And I realize that I could never make it back to you on my own. I'll never be sufficient or good enough. And so therefore... I'm going to stop striving and start resting. I'm going to put my faith and trust that Jesus lived God's design perfectly, that he died for my sin and brokenness, and I'm going to trust that because of his resurrection from the dead that you are satisfied with his payment. And the Bible says for all of those who repent and believe that they are now filled with God's Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God inside of you, the church beside you, you are now empowered to live this life of God's design. That's the hope of the gospel. You say, well, Blake, sounds like I need to do something. Yes, you need to repent and believe. But there's no work. For the Bible says it is by grace that you might be saved. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Today, will you lay down all your other boasting and come and call out and confess Jesus Christ? To the church today, Man, there's, a, there's yeah, absolutely implications of this to go and do. But I think above all, we need to hear that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is a call to come and rest. Just rest. Rest. That God doesn't love you more because you've had a good week and He doesn't love you less because you've had a bad week. He loves you, beloved. Rest in Him. Rest in His death on the cross for your place. Rest in in the fact that He was raised, which guarantees that you too one day will be raised or in Christ. Guys, rest in the fact that unto the grave and throughout all eternity, Jesus will never, I mean never, ever, 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 forsake you. That is our Savior. I hope and pray you know Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus. We give You praise for His perfect death on the cross. His burial, and on the third day, His glorious resurrection. Thank You that He is the first fruit and that we can hope in Him. We give You praise, God, that in Christ the resurrection has already begun. Hallelujah to Your great name. Father, I pray now for those in this room who have not repented and believed. I pray they will stop trusting in themselves and look only to Jesus. Father, may you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through your preached word, you said faith comes through hearing. Father, I pray this morning that they have had ears to hear and they are now going to respond in repentance and faith. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.